house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. He heard the words birth defect and he disappeared. So I don't even know who my father is. I just know that's not who I am. And that's not who you are either. Now, these two knights are on a crusade to bring chivalry back in style. Their fair means to rescue and dragons to slay. Set the wrong things right and prove that courage comes in all sizes. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that wants you to be kind. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my mechanical bird, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Launch me into the skyline of Cincinnati. (laughs) Get on your whirly bird and fly away. (laughs) Cincinnati Cinema. Uh, I know. What others? Thought so much about it. it. This exists within the same cinematic universe as Dark Waters, as The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Wow. I'm trying to place other Cincinnati movies. I would not have remembered that Killing of a Sacred Deer was a Cincinnati movie. That's very good. Oh, let me tell you. like That definitely like affected my reading of the movie. Of like, Cincinnati is the perfect choice for The Killing of a Sacred Deer and like what it is saying about the nuclear unit and you know, oh my god, that's so funny. Wasn't Anomalisa Cincinnati? Hmm. Now I want to look It would up. track, but I don't think it was Cincinnati. I, yeah. I tried to he scrub was, yeah, most traveling, of Anomalisa out of my brain. Traveling to um, Cincinnati. Yeah. I, I feel like I remember something about, like, Skyline Chili or something like that in there. So, um, yeah. Yes. And yet, all of everybody in this movie clearly has you know migrated to cincinnati because no one has the same dialect in this movie it is kind of like a vision board of what people think cincinnati might sound like um we're gonna end up talking about jillian anderson in this movie at some point who i have previously on mic referred to as the pedal coil of this movie one bajillion percent is the one bajillion percent. She is Kate Blanchett in the shipping news. Yes. I don't know what Jillian Anderson is on. I feel like she is trying to perform some type of like meta comment on this character. She plays her. The performance is like straight out of a Branson, Missouri airport community theater production of Steel Magnolias. It's um, it's very um like modern day gangsters mall meets um sort of like white trash roseanne kind of side character she also she shows up at the very all about eve on a springer episode she shows up at the very end of this movie uh on a bus stop with a neck brace and her hair 
very curly and up in like a side ponytail. And she looks for all the world like a slightly more grown up Lara Flynn Boyle in Wayne's world. Remember Lara Flynn Boyle? <laughs> Hi, Wayne. When she like takes Hi. the header over the car and then she ends up in the neck brace. That's <laughs> And she's okay. Yeah. That's all I could think of. That's absolutely all I could think of, uh, Gillian Anderson in this movie. She is worth the price of admission because it is a bonkers performance. Holy mackerel. It is from another planet. And this was like... Gillian Anderson is like a weirdo, but she's the type of actress that her performances don't give off weirdo energy. But this one definitely definitely does. does. This was during her like heyday of... X-Files, like, I think she might have won, and now I want to look and see when she won her Emmy Awards, because she might have won the Emmy, like, this very year. It was... uh, No, she had won it the year before. She had won the Emmy in 1997 for playing Scully on the X-Files, and then this was 1998. So she was a reigning Emmy champion. So she would have, like, just won her Emmy filming this, though. Yes, exactly. Yes, she probably walked in, placed her Emmy on the table, and also... This was just before, like right before James Gandolfini got The Sopranos. So this was like a really interesting kind of like nexus uh, for a couple of these people. We'll talk about Gandolfini because this is, of course, our sixth James Gandolfini movie. So we're going to do a little six-timer celebration for him. But we're talking about The Mighty this week, Chris. We are indeed talking about The Mighty. Before we get into it, I want to remind our listeners, all month long, we are preparing for our next Listener's Choice episode and our next Mailbag episode. So definitely tweet at us and email us your Listener's Choice uh, submission and your Mailbag questions. Uh, Just a quick reminder that Listener's Choice episodes, nothing uh, after 2019. And uh, one uh, movie per person. Reminder that the Kill Bill movies are two movies. Uh, stuff like that. As so, as the person uh, who is keeping the spreadsheet for this, Chris, how insane has it been trying to... Because like, I don't think I've seen any movie that's gotten two votes yet. Uh, we have multiple movies that have multiple votes at this point. Okay. The submissions aren't too wild yet all right uh also a reminder you can only did i say you can only submit one movie you did yes first movie i see you submitting is the one that gets the tally so vote wisely all right um but you know usually as these things go most of the votes come in pretty late people like to stew on their questions their listeners choice they know the responsibility that they have in their grasp well and credit to the people who vote early because you've used your vote and now you are at the mercy of other people agreeing with you or not. So you're, exactly. you're setting you, the pace. If you are an early voter, you have a responsibility to get other people to the polls who might not have the means to do so. So, uh, you know, corral your friends. Get votes in there. Again, this is how Mother Marcos beat but Mother Blanc. Uh, but that's a, that's a different episode. <clears throat> Excuse me. I- Democracy dies in darkness. Uh uh, throw in your mailbag questions and listeners' choice to us. Yes. You can tweet at us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, or you can email us at hadoscarbuzz at gmail. Do it. All right. So back to the mighty. This is one we've sort of had hanging out in our, you know, uh, movie bank for a while. Should we do it? Obviously, it got a Best Supporting Actress Golden Globe nomination for Sharon Stone, which is sort of why it 
hangs around in this midst. It was a Miramax movie, so we knew that they knew how to, you know, campaign, even though this was 1998. So this was obviously the Shakespeare in Love year. They had, you know, bigger fish to fry, but this was never going to be a big fish no matter what. This was always going to be a very targeted Oscar campaign if there was going to be one. And there is a sense that... Like, this is the kind of indie movie that you would need to, you know, create a little bit of a narrative around, right? It's important that Sharon Stone is playing the mother of a sick kid, and it's inspirational, and uh, it's not the kind of movie that they make anymore. And I don't no. want to be, like, secret masterpiece, because it's not. It's fairly it's no, 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 no. sentimental, and it's cheesy, and it's, you know, uneven in places, but... It's a that cute, being said, I like it. It's a cute movie. It's a cute movie. It's a it's a why it adi- is it's it's a a less gratiating and annoying version of what you think the movie is going to be. That is true. Um, I also have a soft spot for this movie because I was a kid who read the books. Oh, so, you did? Like, I didn't know I that did. at all. I don't. I had never There's heard of these books. books. There's a sequel after what takes place in this movie. Interesting. Where the lead character, uh, basically, there's another uh, semi-tragic child figure that becomes his friend, and you know. Oh wow! Voila. So, um, I want to put a pin in the Miramax thing because now I've opened up the Miramax Wikipedia page, and you would—it's astounding how many movies they released in this year. This was yeah post English Patient, so they were really like feeling themselves, and like you could tell. So, um, but I was going to say this is the kind of YA adaptation you don't get anymore, where now all of a sudden YA seems to be exclusively, um, like big scope post-apocalyptic adventure starring kids. Franchise cinematic universe type of thing. Or a tragic teen romance where one of them is dying, if not both of Mm -hmm. them are dying. Like, there's a dying kid in this, I mean, this this is like a tragic teen friend-mance where one of them dies. But you don't get that anymore. You don't get the, um, like, this is, and this is a movie that is, it's pitched to, like, Maybe sad kids and their parents. You know what I mean? I'm like, it is very much a movie that would be like watched in a classroom on a TV that was wheeled in on a cart. But like, I would say, and we'll get into like some of the tropes that are in this movie that are like very Oscar friendly. That like, if the movie was a little bit better and more like serious minded, I think this movie like. Part of why I think it's enjoyable, at least, is that it's, you know, unpretentious about this. But, like, yeah. if it followed those tropes down maybe a little bit heavier of a path, like, this is the type of movie that would have done, you know, better or at least seemed more like an Oscar play um, Yeah, in watching the movie. Yeah. It's also a movie about, like, young characters sort of forming their own reality which is like a lot of a lot of movies did that around that era um some of them were very sort of like artsy and high-minded about it like heavenly creatures or something like that but um even stuff like you know your bridge to terabithia's your um 
even to an extent like my girl where it's not like they like made their own reality mm-hmm. but like the two little kids in my girl another movie with a culkin um who dies uh but like they had their own like little you know world together right they were just like the way that like kids do that where like the kids lives kind of exist independently and the threats are the t- times that that world is punctured which is what happens in the mighty two with you know eldon mm-hmm. henson's dad comes back it's james gandolfini he's a criminal he's been in jail and that like intrusion of you know his haunted past with with his dad kieran culkin's you know thing with his sickness those things sort of infringe upon this you know great little friendship that they had it's cute it's a cute movie it's a nice movie. It definitely plays to teens and preteens more. And like yes. what I was more elo- ineloquently saying is that like if it was more for adults, you know, it would be like treated differently. Like My Girl, I think, is a great counterpoint to it, too. Whereas like at least at the time, like I think we can take My Girl a little bit more seriously now. But like at the time, it's like this is a movie for children because it's like that's who they're aiming for. Like I think if if the Mighty was more geared towards adults, you'd see more of Sharon Stone's character mm -hmm. trying to like find answers to her son's illness or you know grappling it with it on her own. You never really, you very rarely see her on her own in this movie. Besides like a scene with a doctor where she's, you know, being told the kid's diagnosis otherwise. Or a scene with Jennifer Lewis, our first Jennifer Lewis picture. Okay, this is a thing. This is maybe my biggest complaint with the movie, is you cast Jennifer Lewis in your movie to play a purely functionary character. Like, what a waste. What a waste Mm -hmm. of such a sparkling personality to have her have to deliver these, like, very dry pronouncements as a school principal, like... In one scene? It's two scenes, because she also has the scene where she tells uh, uh, Eldon Henson's character that her father got paroled. Ah, yes. So, but anyway, it's still two scenes where she's just being the the somber bearer of troubling news, which that's not what you cast Jennifer Lewis in your movie for. I don't know where else. I guess she could have played the Gillian Anderson role and she would have been amazing at it. But uh, um, anyway, I was trying to think of all of our uh, movies, categories, categories that I could possibly pull out Jennifer Lewis and the mighty. And I was not coming up with any of them. Uh, unfortunately, we got to do categories again soon. All right. So, um, Miramax in 1998, I want to sort of set the table with this because, like, they were not kidding around. They had so many movies. A lot of them uh, you've maybe not heard of, but I think the bigger ones, or at least the ones that feel more notable now, they had the uh, M. Night Shyamalan debut movie, Wide Awake, Renee Zellweger in A Price Above Rubies, which I've never seen, but I definitely remember it. That's the one where she... um, Is that the one where she plays a... Uh, Hasidic woman, or is that I do believe a different one? Um, but anyway, yes, yes. Um, is that the one also that stars? No, what's the one where the co-stars Vincent D'Onofrio, who she always credits as like helping to teach her how to act? Oh, um, the whole wide ooh, world. That's right. Yes, maybe. Yes, I think maybe? that's the one. Anyway, um, a price above rubies was Miramax 1998. Sliding doors, which they did in in co-production with Paramount. Um, 
Smoke Signals, which was a big Indie Spirits hit, I remember at the time. 54, which we've covered on this podcast before. Rounders, which was such a like big MTV demographic uh, hit at the time. The Mighty, Life is Beautiful, which was the other big Oscar play that they had. Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine, Woody Allen's Celebrity, uh, Little Voice, which got an Oscar nomination for Brenda Blethyn, another uh, Gillian Anderson, Jenna Rollins joint, playing by heart, uh, came out in December. They're both in that, right? I'm not wrong. Yes, I can't wait until we cover that movie. We are going to cover that movie at some point. Oh, what a cast. What a cast in that film. Um, Down in the Delta, which was the movie that was directed by Maya Angelou um, that I've not seen, but uh, I remember that being a little bit of a deal. And yeah, those are sort of the big ones in 1998. And that's like, that's not all of them. Like there are maybe a dozen more movies that are like smaller and you've maybe never heard of before, but they were churning them out in this era. And so the fact that their big awards plays were obviously Life is Beautiful and Shakespeare in Love, but they were able to get a nomination for Brenda Blethyn and Little Voice. They were able to get a costume nomination for Velvet Goldmine, which is why we can't talk about that movie on this podcast, unfortunately. They were able to make Rounders something of a hit. They were able to make uh, Smoke Signals and Indie Spirits hit. Like, they were... they. They were putting all their eggs, most of their eggs, in the Shakespeare in Love and Life is Beautiful baskets. But, like, there were eggs to go around. You know what I mean? Like, they had a lot of eggs. This is Miramax in 1998. They had a lot of eggs. So Sharon Stone got a little bit of a of an Oscar campaign out of this, enough to at least get a Golden Globe nomination. Her first of two consecutive ones, because we've talked about the other one that she got the very next year uh, for The Muse. The watch gift controversy. Yes. So we're back to Sharon Stone. She plays the, um, you know, concerned, frightened, warm, um, nice mom to Kieran Culkin in this. Why don't we do the plot description now so that we can get into like, let's do it. The nuts and bolts of her character. All right. Been a minute since I've had to do one. So let's see. I know. I know. All right. So this week we are going to be talking about, as we said, 1998's The Mighty, directed by Peter Chesum, written by Charles Leavitt, based on the YA novel Freak the Mighty by Rodman Philbrick. Stars Eldon Henson, Kieran Culkin, Sharon Stone, Jenna Rollins, Harry Dean Stanton, Gillian Anderson, Meatloaf, and and James Gandolfini. It premiered on October 9th, 1998. Chris, I'm going to pull out my little stopwatch. I'm going to give you 60 seconds on the clock. Are you ready to talk about The Mighty? I am. All right. Your time starts now. All right, The Mighty follows Max, who is a very large, uh, like, 14-year-old kid. Uh, His, like, size makes kids pick on him, but he is also dyslexic, so he, like, is kind of ostracized in class. This gets him uh, kind of like a detention tutor in um, a uh, disabled boy who goes by the name Freak um, that he has adopted from the people who tease him because he walks with crutches and he has this disorder where uh, problems with his blood, etc. They basically uh, develop this fantasy relationship where they are Arthurian knights going around doing good things like finding ladies' purses for them. They take it to that lady, and it is Jillian Anderson as a Springer guest, but she knows Max from his past uh, because she recognizes him as the son of a murderer who is just now getting out of jail, who then kidnaps Max and uh, 
uh, Freak finds out that he is being kidnapped and then goes and saves him and then they have a happy life together until Freak dies shortly after Christmas and then uh, you know Max decides to you know, go time. forth and be happy that's time very good almost exactly on time well done yeah he dies shortly after Christmas it's sad it's not a ton of plot and I think the movie is a little bit more interested in like the kind of emotional texture of it and this friendship than like yeah. things that actively happen in it uh, Max lives with his grandparents who are played by Jenna Rollins and Harry Dean Stanton yeah they have uh, the the sort of Arthurian thing um, is the big sort of thematic thread through the movie yeah. where uh, Max... They go and they do good deeds, like uh, make abusive boyfriends leave cafes. Right. Yes. Max, uh, being the the bigger one, sort of carries uh, Kevin around on his shoulders, and so they become this sort of like, you know, two tiered uh, superhuman almost. Like, and Kevin's like kind of like, you know, kicking his heels in to make him turn one way or the other. So there's a little bit of like, you know, a knight atop his steed sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's cute. It's the, that thing of like two broken people, you know, find what they are missing in one another, which, you know, is a cute idea. And um, and there's like this whole like you know societal underdog thing of it. Like the movie doesn't really deal with like the poverty that they live in, but right. like they're in a rundown neighborhood type of situation. Exactly. You know, Max's dad killed his mom and then kidnaps him, and they like are hiding out in this you know kind of ramshackle apartment building. Yep, yep, it's true. Um, do you have like? Any kind of associations with Alden Henson from the movies that you watched when you were a kid? I mean, he's in She's All That. He's in She's All That. He started, so he was... With Kieran Culkin, by the way. Oh, I didn't realize, I didn't remember that Kieran Culkin was in She's All That. Is he the little brother? Yes. I think he is her little brother, yes. Interesting. Alden Henson started out, at least for me, he was in a, a few other movies, but the first thing I ever saw him in was the Mighty Ducks movies. He was... Oh, duh, the Mighty Ducks. One of the sort of... The... This is the gritty reboot of the Mighty Ducks, <laughs> just the Mighty. Right, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, you're right. He was in She's All That. He was in that movie Idle Hands with uh, Devin Sawa. Um, sure. He sort of shows up every once in a while. I also... Um, remember him from not specifically the battle of shaker heights but the battle of shaker heights was the movie that was a result of the second season of project Greenlight, and so um they cast him as kind of the best friend in that and that was another movie where uh these teen characters create their own little reality and that one i think it was like reenacting great battles through history or whatever um and that was Shia LaBeouf was the main star of that. So I remember Eldon Henson a little bit from that. And I always sort of liked him. He's showed up more recently in the Hunger Games movies. And he was on Daredevil, the uh, the Netflix series Daredevil, and all those mm -hmm. attendant uh, uh, TV shows. But he's a, he's somebody who I always associate very strongly with like the movies of my teen years. When teen I was, era yeah. of this era basically and then kieran culkin you know growing up sort of in the shadow of 
his more famous at the time, at least older brother, Macaulay Culkin, his career at this point, he was like, he's in the home alone movies. He's fuller who wets the bed in the, in the home alone movies. But like, Mm -hmm. uh, he was mostly known before this for being the youngest kid in the father of the bride movies. He's, uh, he's the little, he's the little one in that, the one who goes and parks the cars in the father of the bride in, in the first father of the bride um and he's very like cute he's very little in that he's like little kid in a tux in uh, in father of the bride how tall is kieran culkin as an adult oh do we know i can't imagine he would allow that on his uh, as a wikipedia you page. you mean kieran culkin height is not in your google search history <laughs> no kieran culkin other things is in my google search history um ah, yes, yes kieran culkin kieran culkin bangs wedding um is in my is in my uh, <laughs> google search history um kieran culkin shower curtain kieran culkin we should say as we are recording this is hosting saturday night live tonight um and i'm i'm hopeful that he will be uh, funny and cute in that i uh I've got a little. I'm in a little Kieran Culkin era for myself at the moment. So I'm really interested in Roman Roy's character arc this season. He has started out really in a kind of interesting ways, exposing his vulnerability uh, unexpectedly. It's going to end so poorly, but uh, I can't wait. Um, so yeah, uh, the Mighty in 1998, and then he's in a bunch of things in '99. He's in She's All That, as you mentioned. He's in Music of the Heart. He's uh, one of Streep's kids. In Music of the Heart. Wait, there's somebody else, too. Her two kids are, like, two people who, um... Oh, it's Michael Angarano, who's the other one. Those are her two kids in uh, in Music of the Heart, which I think is very funny. Don't want to talk about my Michael Angarano Google search. See? Me. See? this? All right. So now we have... All right. We, we split up Meryl's kids. As an adult, I want to obviously, be clear. Obviously. Not crazy. There's here. a specific uh, GIF from the Nick that you know. I know, I know of that GIF. Don't worry. Um, uh, Karen's also in the Cider House Rules uh, that same year. One of the orphanage oh kids. Oh boy. Oh right, because he's he's like Toby Maguire's younger friend at the orphanage yep. that like he comes back to. He's sad when Toby Maguire has to leave him. Yeah, and then 2002 is the next sort of like big moment for him where Igby goes down, and. Then nothing really at all until he's sort of back again in Scott Pilgrim versus the world in 2010. And that's sort of when he's, you know, starts working more, more regularly from there. So it was amazing to me rewatching this movie how close, you know, his whole vibe is to the Roman Roy performance because, yes. like, He's a wise-ass kid in this movie, but charming. And, like, you know I hate wise-ass children and, like, wise-ass characters in general. But, like, he's actually, like, a charming young actor in this movie. Um, Yeah. I think he always has been. He's always been the sort of, like, the most talented Culkin. I feel like that was even from, like, a young age. And he kind of vacillates between smart-ass insular and sort of you know smug and smart ass inviting like i think in scott pilgrim versus the world that's sort of that's a very like smart ass charming kind of a role where he's uh michael Sarah's best friend and he's uh you know he's gay and he's witty and he's whatever one of he was one of the, my favorite parts of that movie that i mostly did not quite latch on to 
Um, I mean, with the exception of, like, in the mighty, he is a vision of goodness and virtue. And, you know, in succession, he is evil, like everyone on the show. Um, it's like, it, he plays characters that have an awareness of other people's perception of him and mm. undermines it with a sense of humor. Um, that I think he's a very good performer of. I saw him on uh, on stage in This Is Our Youth uh, several years ago, him and uh, Michael Sarah actually, in that. Um, and he was quite good. I really liked him in that. Tavi Gevinson was also in that production, which, you know, okay. Um, but he's good in this. He's like, you know, he's mostly, you know, he's the little one in this he's the one you know who you know you know at the outset of this movie where that character is going right. you know he's gonna die and you know it's gonna be sad um because you're watching a movie about what this is about right the stuff that really got to me mostly emotionally wasn't necessarily the stuff with him though it was the parts where like sharon stone was being kind to max you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. like that's the kind of stuff that gets me is the sort of there is a there's not a ton of conflict between Sharon Stone and any of the other characters in this movie, really. There's not a ton of conflict beyond the James Gandolfini aspect of, um, you know, him coming back and, and threatening the kid. But then the bullies and the beginning of the movie, right? But it's all that's all sort of like it's ex- external threats. That's the thing I was sort of talking yeah. about, like external threats. There's not even with like. Jenna Rollins and Harry Dean Stanton as Max's grandparents. They're very concerned about him. And at one point, the grandfather seems to be, you know, sort of pessimistic about whether he can escape the sort of legacy of his father and this kind of thing. And he's just like his father. Um, and yet, you don't have any, like, big fight fights, arguments between, like, Max and his grandparents. Or, like, you don't get the scene of, like, Sharon Stone coming over and being like, I don't want your son around my son because, or your grandson around my son because, you know, it's hazardous to his health or whatever. You know, like, you would... Yeah, she, she's she's introduced in the movie after the whole, you know, festival or whatever fireworks thing. Yeah. You know, where... Max has evaded bullies and protected Kevin, and she's introduced in the movie essentially thanking Max's uh, grandparents for that, you know? So it's like... It sort of... Which is interesting because they live on, like, the same block, so you could have had some type of, you know, relationship development there, but the the movie's not interesting. And they also have... They have, like, Christmas dinner together in this sort of, like, montage scene. And yet you don't really have any scenes. I would have killed for a scene of Sharon Stone and Jenna Rollins talking to each other. Cooking a turkey. Something. Like, I would have, you know, just give me that. They're the two, you know, best. Arguing over how to make mac and cheese. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Like, God, I would have killed for that. Um, But so this movie uh, is an adaptation of a YA book. I guess the first in a series, which I didn't know. So thank you for that. Um, Directed by... Peter Chesholm, who's sort of, he's a British director, but mostly not somebody I had ever really heard of. He had done um, some uh, acting work in, like, theater and stuff like that in England. Um, He had, by this point, directed a movie called Hear My Song with, um, uh, who's in that movie? It's a British, I want to say it's a musical, or, like has some sort of like musical tinge to it. 
Um, it's a Songs of a New World adaptation, and they just change it to the <laughs> title to the finale song. Um, but that was another Miramax movie from uh, the early 90s. Um, but this is sort of the first big American movie he did, but then follows this up with a string of movies that had, like, on a long enough lead, you could look at these movies and be like, oh, maybe that'll be something. And then they, like, definitely weren't. Where uh, The next one after The Mighty was he directed Town and Country, which was this, like... Which we have to do an episode on at some point. We absolutely do. Sort of this, like, legendary uh, faceplant of a movie that starred Warren Beatty. And, like, Warren Beatty was not making movies at this point. So, like, Warren Beatty making a movie was news um, at this point in his career. And, like... Nothing happened with it. Diane Keaton's in it. Goldie Hawn, Andy McDowell, Gary Shandling, Nastasia Kinski. Like, this cast is crazy. And it was written by, or co-written at least, by Buck Henry, who we talked about recently when we did To Die For. So that was a total flop. Critics hated it. Nobody saw it. He then it cost $100 million to make it. Yeah. God, is that true? Holy yes. shit. Yeah. That same year, he directs Serendipity, the uh, jo- John Cusack, Kate Beckinsale rom-com that I want to say, was that one of those, like, got released right after September 11th movies? It was indeed a very, like, immediately post-9-11 movie. And it I was, believe it came out that September. And it was set in New York City. So, yes. like, it's supposed to have, like, the whole thing is it's like, it's, you know, the holidays in New York City, and it's supposed to make you, like, really sort of swoony for the city. So, like, the timing could not have been worse with everybody having such anxiety about New York City at the time. So... I've never seen that movie, but I've heard every once in a while somebody will stick up for that as like an underrated rom-com. Molly Shannon is like the friend in that movie, right? Is she? I've not seen it. I should see it. I should see it. At some I point. know that the joke is that she gets a fake Prada bag and the bag says Prado. <laughs> That's funny. And then 2004, he directed Shall We Dance, which was Richard Gere takes dancing lessons from Jennifer Lopez so that he can... Uh, be a better husband to his wife, Susan Sarandon. And I can't remember. Is there a romance between Richard Gere and Jennifer Lopez in that? Or is that not the direction that it goes? I think it's like the idea of it, but that's not the way that it goes. Right. Also a remake too. Oh, right. Um, of a, of a Japanese movie. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, that one doesn't really, like, that was another one where it's just like, maybe it's got Richard Gere, it's got Susan Sarandon, it's got Jennifer Lopez, could that be something? And like, no, by the time, like, people saw it, they were like, yeah, that's not really an awardsy thing. So, and then most recently, he directed the um, Asa Butterfield Got Born in Space movie, uh, The Space Between <laughs> Us. Remember that one? Um and it's like a teenage romance, right? Because it's him and Britt Robertson. Something like that. Something like that. Anyway. You you hopscotched over perhaps the most important credit in his director filmography. Oh. Let, the Hannah Montana movie. Right. Which I saw in a theater. <laughs> I think I theoretically saw it, but I'm not positive. Um, This was when uh, actually past guest, recent past guest Tara Ariano and I had decided we were doing something called Bad Movie Wednesdays, where every I worked and she lived in the same sort of neighborhood. And so we would just get together and pick something that looked dumb, but we were intrigued enough to see it, and we would go see it. This is how we watched um, 
Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. This is how we saw Seventeen again together. We saw Monsters vs. Aliens, and we saw the Hannah Montana movie, among a few others. But uh, that was a fun little time. Hannah Montana, the movie, justly remembered mostly for Margot Martindale doing uh, Ho Down Throwdown. <laughs> Which I know one of our other past guests, Cameron Sheets, asked Margot about when uh he interviewed her for the av club and she like totally remembered it and she like did a little like bit of it it was very charming and very cool so um yeah you're right i should have mentioned the hannah montana movie probably his like biggest success of his career i would i would say that's probably a very solid bet because the mighty did not make any money let's let's say that very let's be clear about let's be clear on our terms about that so, also in this movie, as we have mentioned, is James Gandolfini playing Eldon Henson's father. Killer Kane. Killer Kane. Which, like, he's basically playing a WWE wrestler, but it sounds like a WWE name. Like, well, there, yes. I'm pretty sure even the grandparents refer to him as Killer Kane, and it's like you know, you know his name. Listen, if, you know his real name. If you name your kid Killer Kane, he's not going to grow up to be a you know florist. Or Listen, like the that. only Killer Kane I want to talk about is Carol Kane in Office Killer. Um, Killer Kane. There is a WWF wrestler, WWE wrestler uh, called Kane. So good get there. But it also makes me think of on the challenge. Has she killed someone? Um. No, well, his origin story, Kane's origin story, was that he was the survivor of a uh, funeral home fire. He and his family were, grew up uh, in a funeral home where his father was the uh, whatever funeral home guy. And his brother, the Undertaker, supposedly set the fire at the funeral home that killed him. But of course... Uh, that was not true, and there were lies and deceptions, and it's wrestling, so like backstories get changed every several years. And uh, but that was the big uh, dramatic origin story of Kane. But also, it makes me think of the challenge, which is one of my you know guilty pleasure shows, where there was a girl uh, named Cam, and she uh, won a bunch of challenges, and she named herself Killa Cam, which was like awesome, and she was great, and I loved Killa Cam. So anyway. Gandolfini as Killer Kane is our sixth James Gandolfini movie that we have done on the podcast, which comes as kind of a surprise, mostly because it's the most random assemblage of roles I think we've had in any of these six timers clubs. Like I would, (laughs) I would challenge as if like, you know, we can just talk to Nicole Kidman or whoever. Uh, I, I think, there is no weirder assemblage. Well, tell us the roles that have led James Gandolfini into the six timers. Sure. Club. Starting with Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which he's uncredited in. And by our Matt Damon, uh, Dermot Mulroney accords, you can one uncredited role counts towards six timers. But if it's two of them, uh, they only count as one. So Matt Damon had two uncredited roles, and uh, we had to make him make him wait till his seventh movie. But uh, Dermot Mulroney, uncredited in *Burn After Reading*, that counted. So, by precedent, we are counting *Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil* as our first James Gandolfini movie. Then we did *Get Shorty*, where I believe his character is gets beat up a lot. Um, where the wild things are, 
where he voices the main monster. What's his Carol? Is that his character yes. name? He's so good in that. Sensational performance. Um and then he and Catherine Keener are in another movie together in our next one they uh, uh in enough said. And then all also the king's men he plays a corrupt something or other, right? And all the king's men. Correct. And now the mighty. So that's six movies and you know when we hit six I give Chris a little quiz. So, Chris, are you ready? All the answers uh, yeah. All the answers to these will be one or more of those six movies. So jot them down so you have them to go by. All right. Let's do it. Let's get into it. To start, which of those films is the longest? Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. At 155 whopping minutes. That is correct. Midnight. Very long movie. Which is the shortest? Uh, is that The Mighty? It's Enough Said. 93 ah, minutes. Enough that would have been my second guess. Yeah. Uh, which was the lowest rated on Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, is it uh, All the King's Men? All the King's Men at 11% on Rotten Tomatoes. Which was the highest rated? Enough Said. Yeah, that was easy. 95%. Which made the most money at the domestic box office? Get Shorty. No, close. It's where the wild things are at seventy-seven point two million. Get Shorty was seventy-two million, so you were close. Ah. And I guess if we adjusted for inflation, Get Shorty would probably win it. But like, I don't. Yeah, because Get Shorty was a big hit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I don't do adjusted for inflation. It's fine. Which film made the least money worldwide? The Mighty. The Mighty. Yes, managed to get uh, pretty much tripled up by All the King's Men. Uh, the Mighty made $2.7 million domestic. The, all the King's Men made 7.2. So the, All the, the King's Men ones. definitely got a somewhat wide release compared to The Mighty. Yeah. Um, which is the only movie of those six that is not based on a book? Enough said. Enough said. Original screenplay. Yes. Which film has a score by James Horner? Ooh, is it uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? It is not Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Is it All the King's Men? Yes, it is. All the King's Men. Which were the only two of those movies that were not nominated for Golden Globes? All the King's Men and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Correct. Get Shorty got nominated for, at the very least, Travolta... Enough Said got nominated for Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Where the Wild Things Are got a song nomination or a score. One of those two. Score, I think. Um, And then The Mighty got nominated for Sharon Stone and the song by Sting, which we will also talk about. (laughs) We got to talk about this. We definitely do. Uh, Which of those six movies got a SAG Ensemble nomination? Um, um, uh, Not Enough Said. Was it wouldn't have been Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Now I'm just trying to remember what these movies are. <laughs> um, holy sh- uh, get shorty, Duh, get, shorty. get shorty. Yes, get shorty did. Yes, which film got a Glad Media Awards nomination for best film? Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Correct. Yes, correct. Yeah. Shout out to Lady Shibley. Ah, may which, she rest. which film was on the National Board of Review's top ten list in its year? Enough said. No. Where the Wild Things Are. Where the Wild Things Are, correct. All right. Which three of those movies star cast members from the movie Margarette? (laughs) Um, 
uh, Kieran Culkin is in Margaret. Um, but no one else is in the mighty. Um, no is yeah. Three movies star cast. Members oh, from not one that stars three. Okay. Correct. So the mighty. Yes. Um, all the King's men, Mark yes. Ruffalo. Yes. And is there somebody in enough said that's also in Margaret? There has to be a bit player somewhere. It's not a bit player. Okay. It's not a bit player from Enough Set or Margaret. Is it Where the Wild Things Are? It's Where the Wild Things Are. Who is it? That just makes sense. Who is it? It's Ruffalo in that as well. Ruffalo. Oh, uh, yes. Yes. The mom's boyfriend in that. All right. Which, I'm only asking you this because I know you've seen this movie recently. Which two films star cast members from the movie Wiener Dog? The Todd, the Todd Salon's movie Wiener Dog. Wiener Dog's a good movie. Um, the Mighty Kieran Culkin is in Wiener Dog. Yep. And um, who else is in Wiener Dog? Ellen Burstyn, who is amazing. Soja Mamet. Um. Shit. Okay. Um. Is it? Is it also where the wild things are? It's not where the wild things are. That would have just made sense. Um, All the King's Men? Not All the King's Men. Hmm. Is it... It's not Get Shorty. No, it is Get Shorty, because Danny DeVito. Yes. Well done. Danny DeVito, also great in Wiener Dog. Yes. Uh, which two of these films star cast members from Velvet Buzzsaw? <laughs> uh, well, Get Shorty and uh, Enough Said. Who from Get Shorty, who from Enough Said? Rene Russo and Tony Collette. Yes, very good. Velvet right. Buzzsaw, a movie I still haven't seen that I will probably never oh, wow. see. Because <laughs> a Netflix movie, if you don't watch it in a month's time, no one will remember it unless it's an Oscar movie. It's true. I would still say at some point when you have like a... Let's slow day. Watch it. It's worth watching. It's not great, but it's worth watching. Uh, which film was released on the same day as Mortal Kombat Annihilation? <laughs> oh, Annihilation. Oh. Uh, what's that quote? Uh, it's like, too bad you will die. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mm, Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Annihilation. Um, I think both of the Mortal Kombat's were released in August. So it, is that hmm. well, it would have been one of the earlier 90s ones. Is it I guess Get Shorty? It's not Get Shorty. Get Shorty was released the same year as the first Mortal Kombat movie in 1995. So is it The Mighty? It's not The Mighty. Is it Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? It is. So okay. it was a November movie, Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Thanksgiving weekend, your choices were Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil or Mortal Kombat Annihilation and maybe something else. But, the uh, best part about Mortal Kombat, the best scene in Mortal Kombat Annihilation is when Natalie Portman tells herself, get over here. <laughs> uh, it's when Sub-Zero... Tessa Thompson just shows up and does a toasty. Yeah, <laughs> Sub-Zero freezes the... the Topiary sculpture of Tessa Thompson. It's a whole thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well done on the James Gandolfini quiz. Good job. Okay. So 
Let's talk about the Sharon Stone nomination for the Golden Globe here, though, because 1998 Best Supporting Actress is a category we've not really talked about a whole lot. So it's interesting because clearly there's some like flexibility with that fifth spot because BAFTA has that it's uh, Sharon Stone and everybody else that she's nominated against at the Globes is oscar nominated and those other four are at bafta they are at critics choice or not critics choice um they show up at sag and the person who takes sharon stone's spot at sag that ultimately becomes the oscar five and it's rachel griffiths in hillary and jackie this movie that fully just doesn't exist on the face of the earth right now that neither of us have seen and we're like we should just maybe watch this movie that isn't yeah conceivably real who won um, the bafta that year uh let me see who won bafta i don't know if it was because lynn redgrave gets the globe right lynn redgrave gets the globe for gods and monsters for playing kathy bates gets the sag yes for primary colors which was my favorite of the performances um, and i don't think judy dench wins the bafta it could conceivably also be um could also be Kathy Bates as well. Right. And then so the fifth nominee, you mentioned Rachel Griffiths, and the fifth nominee rounding it out was Brenda Blethyn in Little Voice, which is kind of a um, a follow-up nomination to uh, Secrets and Lies, which she had been nominated two years before, and was kind of seen as the runner-up choice, right? Like, uh, uh, Frances McDormand won for Fargo, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of people saw that, like, Brenda Blethyn gave the, like, if you looked at the vote totals, people really assumed that Brenda Blethyn finished second that year. Although yes. I would have liked to Brenda Blethyn, I think, is the one who, like, I don't know if she, like, ran the season, basically, in Critics' Prizes, but she also won Best Actress at Cannes when Secrets and Lies won the Palm, which was, like... One of the reasons that they started making rules against, you know, if you give a palm to something or you give the Grand Prix to something, you can't also. Um, oh, the Piano Teacher is another mo- uh, another movie that, you know, kind of made that unofficial rule. Um, but no, Judy Dench also wins BAFTA. The thing about Judy Dench this season, because if I remember, you know, the small, like, details while I was still paying attention much less than I do now is Kathy Bates was considered something of a front runner even though she already had an Oscar and the ding against Judy Dench which she even brings up in her Oscar speech is that she only has like eight minutes of screen time yes, right that was the big thing a lot of people didn't think and Judy Dench was also coming off of a year where she was considered uh probably second place for Mrs. Brown the year before Mm -hmm. when Helen Hunt had won. And both she and Brenda Blethyn had won the Golden Globe for drama. Because remember, Frances McDormand was in comedy for Fargo and she got beat for the Globe by Madonna for Evita. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Helen Hunt was in comedy for As Good As It Gets and she did win the Golden Globe for that. So um, there was sort of, you know, a year after shine for that. But yeah, Shakespeare in Love had all of the miramax buzz behind it but a lot of people were like i don't think she's in that movie enough and that's why kathy bates was seen as if not the favorite like one of like she and dench were kind of neck and neck and that and lynn redgrave a lot of people thought lynn redgrave also could pull off the globe for that so that's another one. lynn redgrave is a little bit surprising as a 
a non as, as someone who didn't win and i think partly it's like gods and monsters was like a heavily discussed movie ian mccullen was possibly second place but like that lynn redgrave win is the type of thing for like when oscar is spreading the wealth and checking boxes for like well this movie has to get something and it but ended for gods up and monsters it ends up being the screenplay yeah it ended up winning screenplay which is a clip i'm pretty sure i've played before because that's the one where um goldie hawn and steve martin are presenting together because they were in the out of towners remake together at the time and that's the one where they're showing all the clips for the movies that were nominated and i think it was gods and monsters the one where they showed the clips and then they cut back to the presenters and goldie hawn was like i used to live in that house and <laughs> and have i played that clip on this podcast before i swear to god i must have i don't know i, don't know. I think it's amazing i used to live in that house for 12 years the, the man that was in the movie, I mean. Yes, the yeah. man who, you know, the... You well, you know. should get your own Oscar then. Well... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's Be- so weird, you know. <laughs> anyway, okay, you go. May I go? Yeah. Okay. I will try to find it because oh. hopefully it's not cut out of the YouTube clip because the Oscars, once again, and I wanted to talk about this with Rachel Griffith's nomination too, you don't have the film clips in there because of rights and licensing type of things, but like... The, the Academy should pay for that just to, so that we can have the yes. Oscar clips and such. Um, because Rachel Griffiths, I remember her clip and I don't think she spoke in it. Oh, that's And funny. it's just like her anxious with a flute, basically. And I, for the longest time, made me think that she didn't – it was a non-speaking oh, role. Like her character didn't speak, <laughs> but apparently that is not true. That was an interesting uh, era for Rachel Griffiths because that was after she did um, Muriel's Wedding, but this was obviously mm-hmm. before Six Feet Under, and that was the one that like was how most people found out about uh, Rachel Griffiths. If you were not an Oscar head like I was, and then when they announced casting for that, it was like, oh, Rachel Griffiths, the Hillary and Jackie woman. Um, but yeah, the the Goldie Hawn Steve Martin clip is very funny because as is Goldie's want, as we and I know I've played the. Uh, Streisand, I've known her for 30 years or whatever moment it's with her. Streisand. Um, she's, she doesn't let a bit go. That's sort of her thing. And she's just like, I used to live in that house. And, and Steve Martin's like, oh, and he's, and he clearly wants to just like get through this. He's kind of annoyed by her. And she's like, I can't believe it. And finally, at one point, he goes, well, maybe we should give the award to you. <laughs> and she's just like, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, I'll, I'll track that down and I'll find that. But also then, so, um, Bill Condon wins for writing the Shakes- the Gods and Monsters screenplay. And there's this shot in the audience of Ian McKellen, Lynn Redgrave, and Brendan Fraser all like literally in each other's laps. So happy. They're all just like leaning over each other and kind of like group hugging. And she's got her hands clasped in joy. And they're, they're beaming at the stage that their filmmaker has won this award and it's so cute and adorable and it really is incredibly endearing for all of them and it makes you me want to you know root for that movie in retrospect all the more so i need to rewatch that movie and i meant to during spooky season because it's you know the director of frankenstein and like that's the text of the movie but um, well and we had done that screen drafts draft of um queer oscar winning movies and mm-hmm. i we had to prep for that one very quickly so it was a lot of like 
quick cramming time and I wanted to fit in Gods and Monsters and I didn't. And that was just sort of on the cusp of uh, movies I could have drafted because it's a good movie. I remember it's a good movie. Should absolutely be Ian McCollin's Oscar and not just because that best actor win is atrocious. Oh, uh, Life is Beautiful? Yeah. I yeah. hate Life is Beautiful so much. I think that movie's so offensive. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's just more that it's not a great movie, but like I get, I get the, the, you know, the offensiveness yeah. angle of it as well. So yeah, Judy Dench ends up defying the odds. Who cares that it was such a brief performance? She played Queen Elizabeth. That was also the one where she was nominated for playing Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love, and Kate Blanchett was nominated for playing Queen Elizabeth in Elizabeth, and Whoopi Goldberg shows up at the Oscars dressed as Queen Elizabeth, and she says, I am the African Queen, and um, it's very funny. I miss Whoopi Goldberg as an Oscar host, as I have mentioned. Oh, the, the best Oscar host, period. Um, you know how the View we, co-hosts dress up in costumes every year for uh, Halloween, for their Halloween episode? Yeah, 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 yeah. So this year, she dressed up as Audrey Tu from Little Shop of Horrors, mostly, oh. I think, so that she could stay seated throughout her entire uh, <laughs> costume, which, good for her. Also, she's been having sciatica problems, so... Uh, we love Whoopi. We love Whoopi. But, uh, and then so she, so they had Jeremy Jordan from the, from the, the little shop stage production come on and he's singing and they're singing, uh, you know, feed me Seymour, that whole, uh, little bit back and forth together. And she's kind of like speak singing. It's like Whoopi Goldberg's whole vibe on the view is like, I'll do it, but like, I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna knock myself out about it. And so she's like, she's doing like this like speak singing, feed me Seymour. It's very fun. It's very cute. Anyway. The thing about, well, Judy Dench, I think the the real edge for Judy Dench, and people don't talk about this because they don't talk about Mrs. Brown that much, but you mentioned she was probably second place for Mrs. Brown. Yes. That, I think, was ultimately the edge, the kind of like afterglow, you know, yes. makeup Oscar thing. Um making up for the previous year. Yes. And it's like eight minutes of screen time. The thing that prevents Sharon Stone, I think, from getting further than the Globes, aside from the Globes, you know, loving Sharon Stone, is does she have that much more screen time than Judy Dench does? It's not very much. It's, it's really not. She maybe if Judy Dench has eight minutes, Sharon Stone has ten minutes. Granted, a good maybe eighty percent of Judy Dench's screen time she does not have dialogue and like Sharon Stone is the center of all of her scenes. Um, yes. And she's game. also playing a very recognizable awards type, which mm-hmm. is it's a definitely a trope that Oscar loves, which is the grieving slash uh, sort of fretting mother of a sick child or, and it's one of those tropes that, it has kind of gone out of fashion a little bit as the Oscars have moved away from, you know, sick child or sort of grief movies in that mm-hmm. particular way. I was sort of looking through recent years, the what the examples that I remember, we mentioned Helen Hunt um, in As Good As It Gets, which like she's got her storyline has a couple of different aspects to it. One of them is this like very odd love story with her and Jack Nicholson's character. But also that character is rooted in she's got a sick kid. That was her Oscar clip is she's like, she's so stressed and worried about her kid. And, and you know, I think her Oscar clip was the mom. What do you want? What do you want from me? Right. That's the isn't. Okay. Yeah. It's a great scene. It's a really, really great for people kind of are hot and cold on that 
probably more cold than hot on her winning the Oscar for that. But I watched it again semi-recently, and she is quite good in that movie, I will say. Um, I don't know how you feel about As Good As It Gets. I think she's fine. I wouldn't give her an Oscar for it, but I'm not going to like talk shit about her in it. The other one from the 90s that uh, I always go back to is Susan Sarandon's performance in Lorenzo's Oil, which is like textbook. Which, this. what if the lake in question was oil? What if the lake in question was made of Lorenzo's Oil? Yes. Um, that is a movie that I think because of its type of movie, which is very much um, – the parents of a sick child are fighting like hell to find a cure. And it's her and Nick Nolte doing the most bananas Italian accent, by the way, in that movie. It's amazing. <laughs> um, she's not doing an accent. It's only the husband that is a, uh, that is Italian, but um, um, it is in the house of Gucci. So <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people, I think that the, People who didn't like that movie kind of tagged it as like a movie of the week or like what now I think people would call maybe like a lifetime movie or something like that. And I think there's part of that is rooted in sexism. But um, there had been a lot of TV movies at the time about like a woman, a, a mother sort of searching for a cure for like whatever was the kind of, you know, to be cynical about it, trendy, you know, disease for children or whatever. But Watch Lorenzo's Oil. I always tell people, and it's a George Miller movie, so like it's it's got a better pedigree than you think it does. And she's so great in that movie. She's like really, really fantastically good in that movie. And that was part of her run of Oscar nominations, not winning, that ultimately led to her winning for Dead Man Walking. But it's just a really committed um intense but like she doesn't she doesn't have a ton of like over the top scenes where she's like breaking down and you know sort of you know tearing at her her garments or whatever on the floor of a of a kitchen in her home kind of a thing she's just there's a lot of just really kind of wonderfully fiercely committed scenes of her have you ever seen that movie not since i was a child and it terrified me because i was going to say what a movie child. to see as a child Listen, we watched a lot of stuff in my house. I probably um, saw it when I was like in my teen years, which like, yeah, it's a weird it's a weird movie for a teen to see. But I remember she's great like in someone it. falling and a glass breaking or something and that upset me. Or maybe... I mean, that's probably true. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it's probably true. I think nowadays you get more characters that are kind of uh like re- ricochet off of this kind of a role where you have right. something like like Halle Berry and Monsters Ball. It's not that her son is like is sick with the disease, but she's also like the mother of a dead child. Right. Mother of a dead child. Angelina Jolie is the mother of a missing child in Changeling. Nicole Kidman is grieving her dead child in Rabbit Hole. Michelle Williams is grieving her dead child in Manchester by the Sea. And then you get things like like Felicity Jones is not the mother of a sick child in the theory of everything, but I think a lot of the appeal to that character is sort of strength in the face of a disease in her family, a sort of Well, yeah, it, it the the Oscar trope has evolved from uh, a grieved mother to strong supportive wife. Right, which is its own I mean trope like supportive wives way. have always been there, yeah. but like it's the the like maternal side of it has just like 
been subsumed by this even larger. But I trope. think even last year with Olivia Coleman's nomination for the father, there's a little bit of that where she's like she's this in this one it's you know, it's her father, it's not a child, it's her father, but it's still the same kind of like you watch somebody go through these like terribly wrenching emotional moments and it's like for the audience it is you know, what if this was your family situation? Like there are families that go through this and what are, you know, you sort of emotionally put yourself in her shoes a little bit. And, right. um, but even like you go back even like to the eighties and whatever, and things like, I know she wasn't nominated for this kind of famously, but like share in mask is kind of the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the ideal almost for a role like this, or even like, again, Another James L. Brooks movie, Shirley MacLaine in Terms of Endearment. She's got a lot of other things going on, but everybody remembers Get My Daughter the the Shot. Yeah, the Oscar clip is Get My Daughter the Shot. Exactly, exactly. So there was a long sort of tradition, and I think that's probably why, a big part of the reason why Miramax decided to campaign for Sharon Stone. The Golden Globe nomination is the only bit of precursor attention she ends up getting for this movie so that it does sort of lend itself to this idea that like miramax you know opened the pocketbook uh for you know probably through a really nice gala for the hollywood foreign press for um the mighty (laughs) and which isn't to say that like sharon stone's not good in this movie but she she is but she's as you said not in it very much and probably wouldn't make my shortlist for no a nomination but like but like her like two her. big scenes are or like maybe you could even say her best scenes in the movie are her beating up a vending machine when kevin gets you know a bad diagnosis and then when she's like comforting max outside of the ambulance as her dead son is being taken away like who among us has not wanted to beat the shit out of a vending machine that was not cooperating first of all (laughs) she wanted hot chocolate with extra whipped cream and she did not get it and i i understand her plight highly relatable um yeah the scene at the ambulance is is interesting it's one of those scenes that really tells you what perspective we're getting from the movie because if you look at it at all from her perspective it's just like oh her son has died and she's taking this moment to console this you know neighborhood kid and all you know it was his her son's best friend and she has you know an emotional connection to him too but ultimately you look at it and it's just like oh wow if this was from her perspective you'd almost be like you know somebody should be comforting her and, and, like, that scene is the one production photo that still, like, lingers with this movie. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Again, would have loved for a scene with her and Jenna Rollins to sort of, you know, where she can... Again, and Jenna Rollins is the mother of a dead daughter. You know what I mean? Like, there are moments where they could have mm-hmm. connected on some levels. and But it's not... This is not a movie from the adult's perspective. This is very much a movie from the kid's character's perspective. And... You know, that's their movie. But even to the screen time thing, and I mean, Max is the protagonist, so this makes sense, but like yeah. Jenna Rollins is in the movie more than Sharon Stone is. Yeah, and she doesn't have a ton to do either, though. But yes, you're no. right. Um, yes. So, unsurprisingly, Sharon doesn't win the Globe, and she had already won the Golden Globe. She had had her Golden Globe moments uh, for Casino a few years before that. But it does contribute to one of the things that the, you know, before the Golden Globes were notorious for other things. They were notorious for nominating the biggest stars whenever they could so that they could get those stars 
to the ceremony so that they could have, you know, the glitziest, most glamorous uh, ceremony. And, you know, it worked. <laughs> it worked. The Golden Globes became the like the biggest party of the year kind of a thing. And yeah, that I mean, still, I think uh, as the Globes, you know, try to uh, they are the dog in a room on fire meme of this is fine <laughs> you know they're still trying to survive even though they're not um uh, like all of that has more to do i think with dick clark productions than the actual hfpa probably um and people i think overlook that like the in terms of like why they became such an event well and also but in terms of the star fuckery can we talk about the globe's original song category this year uh, yes, because The Mighty was a nominee in that category as well. Sting! It's a song written by Sting in the era when Sting was making songs for movies. So Sting kind of quietly became a four-time Oscar loser. And nobody ever talks about Sting when you talk about, like, when are they going to ultimately win an Oscar? But, like, he was nominated most recently for that song, The Empty Chair, from uh, Jim, the James Foley story, the documentary. Part of that run that is still kind of happening of you will probably, you have stand a good chance to have a song from a documentary in the Best Original Song category. Especially if you're a famous person writing it or singing it. Right. So that was his fourth nomination. He had previously been nominated for My Funny Friend and Me from... Emperor's New Groove, until Ellipsis from Kate and Leopold, and of course, I ever remember. Uh, you Will Be My Ain True Love from Cold Mountain, one of the two Cold Mountain nominees, him and Alison Krauss did uh, You Will Be My Ain True Love. So, it's kind of, again, the Oscars also kind of got that reputation around the time that, like, Bob Dylan was winning for uh, the Wonder Boys song, that people sort of kind of calcified this notion that like, oh, the Oscars will award the biggest star in the category. And like, not to be like, not to pull out my Dakota Johnson meme, but like, that's not true, Ellen. Like, that's not really how it goes because like Paul McCartney doesn't win for Vanilla Sky. Sting is 0 for 4. Like, it's not necessarily, sometimes it does happen. Sometimes Adele wins for Skyfall. Like, this is true. But, um, not Sometimes always. Sam Smith is the first gay, openly gay man to win an Oscar. <laughs> but like, you know, like all of those years where we were like, well, Taylor Swift is obviously going to get nominated and win because it's Taylor Swift. And like, here she is still like never nominated by the Oscars, still waiting for her first. An and interesting reminder ahead of this year because original the original song race has like Beyonce and Jay-Z. Um what are the other like famous rock stars this year? Hold on, like, I'm gonna go look up the uh, um, the contenders now because we do do this every every year. We have some excuse to delve into the original song race <laughs> early, and I always love it because like it's so funny to look back on and see, you know, how wrong we were. Um, the other thing that I, while you are pulling this up, while yeah. you're pulling up the the current original song race, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this Sting nomination is uh, it is also our second Sharon Stone episode, previously The Muse, where we talked about the original song, The Muse, from The Muse, by Elton John, and what an abomination on this earth this song is. 
this one, The Mighty, from The Mighty, by Sting, I think is equally as terrible. At some point, Sting is just yelling, Freak the Mighty! Like, that's sort of his, like, (laughs) deal. It's like the last half of the song. It's crazy. And because it's like, it has the, like, Arthurian legend element of it, like, half of the movie's score is pan flutes, and the Very song Celtic. is no yes. different. Yes. It is like, what What was that thing that, like, every mom had in their car? Celtic woman? Oh, well, this is like Lorena McKennett? Child. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's very Lorena McKennett, like, kind of a thing. Yes. Yeah. Um. All right, so... Song contenders this year. You're right. Beyonce has a song from and King Richard. King Richard. Jay Z has a few from The Harder They Fall, the the Western. Uh, the Harder They Fall. Obviously, Billie Eilish from No Time to Die is going to be a contender. Mm-hmm. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda has like eight songs from four In movies or whatever movies. from Encanto, from Vivo, from In the Heights. He's like probably going to get nominated for something. Of course, the, uh, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda is one Oscar away from EGOTing. Um, there's a Carol King written song from Respect that is going to be hanging out there that I think is probably going to be a contender. Um, and also a movie I just saw yesterday, there's a new Van Morrison song in Belfast to go with the 12 other like classic Van Morrison songs that get needle dropped in Belfast, a movie that I liked, but I predict that Chris is going to hate given how much you hated uh, Moonlight Miles onslaught of Van Morrison needle drops. So <laughs> I think I like that movie. I mean, like oh, I'll see Chris, it next week when it we'll opens. See. Like we'll see how it goes. I don't fine. know. Um, I'm I'm bracing myself. There's also the dead in the water. I guess if it, there's seriously that much Van Morrison, I'm bracing myself for like the 2027 Broadway jukebox musical oh. of Van Morrison that is just Belfast. This movie is tailor made to be adapted into a, a stage show. I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't already uh, plans to do so. There is also, by the way, there is of course a Diane Warren song in contention from a movie called Four Good Days. Oh yes. What is that the, one? That's the Glenn Close movie that <gasps> um Right with Mila It Kunis. was a few Sundances ago. Yes. And people really yes. hated it at Sundance and then it very quietly came out like the week after the Oscars this year. Right. There's a song from The Rescue, so that could be our uh, requisite song from a documentary. You never know. Um, there's also, of course, the song from Annette. That's... Oh! Yeah. Annette? You need to catch up to Annette. Buddy. I do. I do. I Again, I need to find... I need to make the right time for it. I need to... I need to just do it. Yes. I I would say Annette is not a horrible plane movie. You're about to Oh my god. What if that? I really I mean like it's two hours and like fifteen minutes. You really want to It's gonna take up a chunk of your plane. I don't know, man. That's a real small screen. Um We'll see. All right, anyway, so yeah, best original song this year has the potential to uh to go some places. There's also, I was going to say the dead in the water, dear Evan Hansen song that looks dead in the water now, but this category has uh, gooped and gagged us before. So you never know. Truly never know. All right. Um, have we like, 
should we revisit Gillian Anderson in this movie? Because we really didn't unpack it to the full oh, extent. Oh, boy. She is a... Like, what character did I call an ashtray? She's not an ashtray. She's like your grandmother's weird tchotchke on a shelf that, like, has some type of deranged... Uh, I don't even know, man. She's... She's one of those characters who, like, in the same scene she sort of vacillates back and forth between, like, is she dangerous? Is she mean? Is she secretly nice? Is she, like, put upon? Is she tragic? Is she, you know, this movie makes a reference. Or is she just, which I think proves to be true, the, like, you know, trailer park lady who calls you honey? Well, at the end of this movie, there's a sort of triumphant moment where Max answers a question from the teacher in school and this is like the big you know oh he's made progress and he's you know he's become a better person from knowing uh knowing kieran culkin's character and the question is asking something about the plot of great expectations and specifically about miss havisham and great expectations and i was like i wonder if that's intentional and whether jillian anderson's character is supposed to be a kind of like younger you know, version of this like Miss Havisham type, which is just this, you know, eccentric woman, you know, living out in this like rundown apartment with meatloaf. And, you know, every once in a while, these like younger characters will happen by and she's like, what is going on with you? And, and you know, <laughs> I don't know. She's she's a whole experience of this, though, truly. She is kind of the reason to watch the movie, I would almost say. Yeah. Like, as this movie, that's kind of more of an artifact. It might be in, like, middle school, uh, like, uh, classrooms still, maybe. But she she's wild in this. I don't, it's like, she was just going for a thing, man. Yeah. Oh, back to the sting thing for a second. I, I, I oh, yes. sort of got past this too quickly. The, um... The best original song nominees that did make it over Sting, because he obviously got bumped out of the Golden Globe. He had been nominated along with, um, hold on now. The Globe lineup is better than the Oscar lineup, even with the Sting, the horrible Sting song in there, purely because Alanis is nominated for Uninvited. Alanis is nominated for Uninvited, the best song of the six. I It was deemed ineligible, right, for the Oscar? probably i think that's right i think it was deemed ineligible as was goo goo dolls iris which was like the big hit song from a movie that year that was definitely not i don't now i'm trying to remember their behind the music and whether it was specific like it couldn't have been specifically it was deemed ineligible because it was on their album like it wasn't just on the soundtrack it was also on their album but i do think it might have been written I think that was the assignment was to write this song to go with this movie, which is like, that's the spirit of the category, right? Anyway, um, uninvited rules should have won also nominated that wasn't nominated for Oscar was reflection in in Mulan, which is kind of Mm -hmm. surprising that that wasn't nominated. Maybe that was also a weird eligibility thing. I don't know, but like Disney cleans up in that category usually. So that's kind of surprising. Um, the nominee that is nominated and not at the Globes that is like kind of shocking is Armageddon. I don't want to miss a thing. Yeah, that must have been a big headline when the Globe nominations came out because that one was also a massive hit song from a movie that year. That and Iris were sort of he- uh, neck and neck probably that summer. 
um, in terms of like songs that were everywhere. Uh, winning the Globe is um, the Quest for Camelot song, The Prayer, that was, I'm pretty sure, sung by Andrea Bocelli. Uh, There's multiple, uh, there was originally multiple versions. There was a Celine Dion version separately and an Andrea Bocelli one. Since they, like, have turned it into a duet, basically. Right. This was, did I tell you the one Thanksgiving, maybe within the last four years, that I I went home for the holiday and all of a sudden my mom was really into Andrea Bocelli? (laughs) And like... And hadn't been before. Who among us haven't experienced this? All of a sudden, she like three or four times was like, do you listen to Andrea Bocelli? And I was like, no. Um, But like, she was like really, really into it. And like, and maybe like, isn't anymore. Like, I don't know, like she hasn't mentioned it since. So like, I wonder if it was just like this like momentary fad that like somebody had put a bunch of like Andrea Bocelli songs up on Facebook or whatever. And she was really into it. But uh, um. Quest for Camelot, the song written by The Prayers, the song written by, among others, David Foster and Carol Bayer-Sager, who are like adult contemporary Hall of Famers from the 1980s. And so that was, you know, kind of a bulletproof Oscar formula for that. Um, But of course, the song that ends up winning the best original song, Oscar. Unimpeachable. Stephen Schwartz from The Prince of Egypt wrote When You Believe to be sung by mariah and whitney which is as i've mentioned here before i'm pretty sure a really fun song to do at karaoke because <laughs> you really we just probably go talked so about it in our exodus gods and kings episode which is basically a when you believe episode yes i think that's probably true um really really schmaltzy as a lot of people really hate that song actually people who like really like they're wrong they're like it's like it's mariah and whitney stands who want bops on bops basically and like my thing with whitney is like i like whitney's bops too but i'm much more of a whitney ballad person because i am cheesy as all get out and when you believe again she just like she stands there and she belts it and and it's the one-upsmanship that goes on between her and mariah in this in that song is fantastic because they really do sort of like trade off like lines back and forth at some point. And it's amazing. And at some point in there, again, it's hard to find Oscar performances of songs on YouTube because of music rights. But if you can find a way to track it down, there is, there's a competition in them. This is very Daniel Plainview, but like there's a competition in them and neither one wants to su- wants the other one to succeed almost. And it's really amazing. That was the whole thing where like a two-sided staircase that they're both coming down. They're both dressed in white. It's there was a lot of rumors at the time that they did not get along and then there was a very concerted effort to counteract that. That, like, then there was a lot of, like, no, this is silly. Of course they got along, whatever. And normally I am not one to relish in um, two famous women hate each other because it's more fun that way, you know, kind of gossip. But I, like, it's much easier to believe that they didn't like each other than they liked each other. If you know anything about... That's what that song is about. It's about when you believe... That two superstars actually do hate each other. Like, listen to Mariah Carey talk about any other pop star and tell me that she and Whitney Houston got along. Like, you're lying to me. You're absolutely lying I mean, she doesn't talk about her like she talks about, like, Nicki Minaj. She doesn't talk about her at all, though. That's the thing. But, like, again, but what I'm saying is... I think that she has since, like, in recent years said kinder things about Whitney. Of course. Like... 
the woman's no longer with us, of course. But I'm I saying, mean, at yes, the time, at the time, come on. Like, just use your logical brain. Anyway, um, yeah, Oscar nominees that year that were not Globe nominees. I don't want to miss a thing you mentioned. Uh, something called A Soft Place to Fall from The Horse Whisperer, which is why we can't do The Horse Whisperer for this podcast, which is a shame because that's like classic This Had Oscar Buzz material. And that'll do from Babe Pig in the City, which, sure, why not? Randy Newman. Randy Newman, man. Anyway, what else that we can talk about about the mighty before we move on to the IMDb game? I think that about covers it. Um, It's sweet. It's a sweet movie. It's a sweet movie. Like, I don't really have much complaints about it. And, like, anything that you would, I think, say against this movie is going to be, like, very obvious that, like, you would say that. Um, I think James Gandolfini, who's basically, like, crime counterpoint, is meatloaf in this movie. It basically makes James Gandolfini seem like hot meatloaf. (laughs) Which James I guess, Gandolfini has a wig in flashbacks. He does, which I guess makes Meatloaf cold Meatloaf, which honestly sometimes is not bad. Meatloaf yes. is a decent leftover food. I will say. That is true. Anyway. All right. Why don't you tell the listeners how the IMDb game is played? You guys, every episode we end with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles released years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Indeed. And pan flutes. And... <laughs> uh, Chris, would you like to guess first or give first? I'm going to give to you first. All right, let's get it. For uh, a performer that we talked about as an Oscar nominee in a film that we have not seen uh, from Hillary and Jackie. <laughs> the I believe she plays the Hillary of Hillary and Jackie. Miss Rachel Griffiths, there is one television. It'd be a gag if the television was in fact brothers and sisters, but I'm going to guess it's six feet under. It is six feet under. Yeah, that's the one she won the Gold Globe for, so that makes more sense. Um, I don't think Brothers and Sisters even shows up in Sally Field's known for. Brothers and Sisters was a fun show. Kind of a hot mess at times, but I really liked Brothers and Sisters. I think the most like noteworthy thing about Brothers and Sisters was Sally Field saying fuck on TV when she won her Emmy. That was great. That was a great Emmy win. I really liked that. She also, I think she won that Emmy the last Sopranos year. So I think there were some people who were mad that Edie Falco didn't win. But like Edie Falco won her Emmys. Like, come on. Anyway. All right. So three other. Hillary and Jackie, I would imagine then. Incorrect. Really? Okay. Really? To a movie that we have said nothing other than it is not real and doesn't exist on the face of this earth? Well, but... It's not like Rachel Griffiths has a bunch of bigger movies, and it was an Oscar nomination for her, so. Oh. Rachel Griffiths. Shit. Now, she's like, she plays the mom to a character in some action-y franchise, I'm pretty sure. Is she like Shia LaBeouf's mom in Transformers or something like that? She is not. That is Julie White. Of course it's Julie White. God forbid. I love so Julie that White so does much. Not, uh, that does not count against you because she is not in Transformers. All right. But she is like 
I think she's the mom to someone at some point. Um, Rachel Griffiths in a movie. Uh, Muriel's Wedding. Muriel's Wedding, okay. correct. All right. So I got two. What else? I'm trying to think of like maybe other Australian movies that she might have been in. I don't think she's in Priscilla. Um, she is not in Priscilla. Right. I didn't think so. Ah, uh, this is going to be tough. Am I missing something that's like really obvious? Uh, I wouldn't say obvious, but it's going to be fun to get you to guess these movies. Oh, God, I hate you. All right. Um, are they... I'm just going to ask for hints now because like, I'm not going to get them. Are they like action movies? Are they dramas? Are they comedies? They are both dramas. Right. I will at least give you that. It looks like she is... Oh, you know what? She's the she's the the um, dance director in the first Step Up movie. Is that it? Is that one of them? Incorrect. Fuck. It is not Step Up. She is third build in one and fourth build in the other. Ooh. Your years are two thousand two and two thousand one. <laughs> okay. Two thousand two. She is probably definitely playing the wife in this movie. Oh um, one is the movie she's fourth build in. I will say O2 is uh, the lead of this movie. It is a sports movie. The lead of this movie it oh. was probably the biggest uh, Oscar snub of the year, people considered. Wait, really? Yes. This is the Dennis Quaid movie? Not, not this movie, but that actor for a different movie oh, in this year. Oh, right. It is the Dennis Quaid movie because he was the snub for Far From Ever. I was like, people thought Dennis Quaid was going to get nominated for the baseball movie. It's called... No. Uh, um, um, the rookie. She's his the wife. The rookie. Right? Yeah. The 2001 movie, um, also featured, actually featured an actor who was it this year? No. Eventually, would become, in a few years, a big Oscar name. We could do this movie, but because of this actor, we don't want to touch this. Oh, Kevin Spacey. No. No, because by then he'd already won one Oscar. And we've done spacey movies. And we've done spacey movies. Um, actors we don't want to do. God, there's a, too many to choose from. Oh, Johnny Depp, is it Blow? It is Blow. Yeah. Yeah, it would be an interesting one to do. And Penelope Cruz as well, but yeah. All right. Mitchell Griffiths, that was tough. All right, Chris, for you, I went into director Peter Chesland's filmography. We talked a little bit about the utter bomb Rooney that was uh, Town and Country, star of which <laughs> was one... Many stars in that movie. Yes. The, the uh, male lead was Warren Beatty, though, so I'm going to give you Warren Beatty. Oh, wow. Warren Beatty. That's a lot of things. It is. Um, are they... All acting roles, though. They are all acting roles. Okay. So he could have maybe produced or directed some of them. But they but... are all acting roles. Okay. Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, correct. In which he is the titular Bonnie. Um, 
Reds. Reds, correct. Okay. Which he also directed. Heaven Can Wait. Heaven Can Wait, correct. Holy shit. Which I think Holy he shit. also directed. Um, ooh, I almost want to ask if the last one is a movie he directed too. It's probably likely that he it, it is. Um, if you think I'm going to tell you before you have any wrong guesses, you are barking up the wrong tree. Sir. You're not. You're not. And I don't want you to because I want to get this. I want to get it. Um Actually, mm, I'm wondering if it, it, he didn't direct it, but I'm wondering if it's Shampoo, because um, that's pretty iconic. I'm going to guess Shampoo. It is not Shampoo. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say Dick Tracy. No, not Dick Tracy. <laughs> All right. So you're going to get a I haven't year. I have a perfect score in a long time. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, you're going to get a year, and that year you'll probably get it for you right away. So the year is 1998. Oh, it's Bullworth. It's Why Bullworth. is Bullworth there? It's Bullworth. Probably his last well-received movie, right? Well-ish. I mean, he got it. Globe nomination for it. Like, I think the reviews were and Maybe mixed, it's just that that movie good. has not aged. <laughs> well, I think even at the time. I, I, don't, I don't know if it necessarily has aged poorly, because I think it was always that. It was always kind of like, right. what are they getting at here? And I think it's still kind of like that. I've seen it more recently than... Like, it was in the last, like, five years I watched it again, and I was surprised by... I was expecting it to be just like, oh, this is utter trash. But, like, it's still kind of provocative in a way that, like, isn't all bad. It's not great. Like, there's, like... Interesting. There's, there's you know, you can definitely be like, this is, you know, misguided. But, like, it knows the, the things that it's poking at. And it's not entirely wrong. So. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's our episode. I think that is our episode, you guys. Thank you for uh, joining us. Do we want to one Thank more you for time? Joining us for the mighty. One more time, remind our listeners about the mailbag and the listener's choice. We are doing a mailbag and a listener's choice to wrap up 2021. Uh, for the rest of November, you can submit both your listener's choice option and your mailbag questions to us. For the listener's choice, remember, uh, nothing after 2019 or episodes we've done. Only one movie per listener. Uh, yeah. And the mailbag, you can send us any of your questions, whether it be about the podcast, the Oscars, the current season, past season, mm. actresses, what if scenarios, those type of things. Uh, you can submit both of those to uh, uh, tw- our Twitter account at hat underscore Oscar underscore buzz, or you can email us at hat Oscar buzz at Gmail. Indeed. Um, that is also, again, that Twitter account at hand underscore Oscar underscore buzz is where you can follow us for uh, everything, including upcoming movies. Chris loves to give his little teases for what's coming up, so uh, we have good fun there. You should also check out the Tumblr at hat, th- or, sorry, at this hat Chris, where can the listeners find you specifically? 
You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That is F-E-I-L. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, Reed spelled the same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so get yourself outfitted for your bionic body and write us a nice review, won't you? That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. We'll be right back.